Welcome to A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar, a podcast with relatively well-informed and irreverent musings on religion, news, and society. And now, for your hosts, Rabbi Asher Lopatin and John Geringer. Hey, hi, John. Hey, Asher. Happy Tubishvat almost. Oh, I cannot wait. It's a very exciting day. Well, maybe that halachically, religiously, the only exciting thing is that you don't say Tachanun. Tachanun is this extra prayer after the Amidah, after the main standing up prayer that you say that you fall down and you say, I'm sad. And, and it's like Nifilada Pime, it's like falling down on your face. It's like, oh my goodness, Hashem, God help us. But when you don't get to say on festive days, you don't say it. So on Tubishvat, we skip it. And it's a Monday this year, next Monday, the 6th of February. And there's long tachanon on Mondays and Thursdays. It's extra long, it's like a five minute thing. So it eliminates five minutes. And we love praying, but you know, when it tightens it up a little bit, it's a little exciting. Well, let's take a step back. What does Tubashvat even mean before we unpack it more? The 15th, two is like Tet Vav, means Tet is nine, Vav is six. So the 15th of the month of Shvat. And a lot of people associate it with trees, and it's a big universalist holiday, it seems, at least for some people. We'll get into that later. But it really started off the Talmud. Basically, it's our version of April 15th, isn't it? Yeah, it's well put. Exactly. It's when you can only tithe, use fruit from the tax year to it's sort of, yeah, like an accounting thing, like, you know, what year your budget, it's like your fiscal year. So the fiscal year for trees ends or when the, if it buds before Tubishvat, it counts for the previous year. If it, if the fruit starts budding after Tubishvat, then that's fruit that needs to be tied and then tithed in the next year, taxed basically in the next year. So yeah, it's the cutoff point basically and when when the fruit begins to appear. And it almost seems to be the beginning of, at least here, the it seems like we have more daylight longer in the day. We're starting to feel like the beginning of spring, even though it's 10 yeah, degrees. I think it's like the delusion of the beginning of spring because, and and there's, I used to give a little sermon about it, that it's sort of like the, even according to the traditional sources, and in Israel, you know, it is getting closer to, you know, spring, but not really. And, but our rabbis say that this is when the sap inside the tree starts to wake up. So the outside you really barely don't really notice it, but it's the beginning of spring, the internal spring, even though it might be a little bit warmer next week than this week. This week is very cold in Detroit. So yeah, it's it's we're starting to think about spring. Let's say that. And we talked before about how you have a Passover Seder, which most people know. There right. is a Rosh Hashanah Seder, which some people know, but not a lot of people know that there is actually a Tubishvat Seder. Yeah, the great Kabbalist, you know, Rav Luria, you know, Arizal, according to traditional sources, he sort of started it. But then a lot of sources have Nathan of Gaza and have like different Sabbateans a century later who were kind of kind of messianists, a sort of strange messianic movement within Judaism that was uh, harshly condemned and rejected. And it did not end well. No, no, no. They 
embrace this wonderful Seder, which is, a you know, and just because the Sabbateans embrace it, if it started with the great Arizal, then Revluria, then it's a good thing. And it's like, it's fun. It's like four cups of wine, but it's like goes from, I forgot whether from white wine to red wine or red wine to white wine. Of course, you can substitute grape juice. And and then you go from different kinds of fruits, eating sort of the seeds to eating the whole fruit. There's like a whole kind of explanation of being more and more connected to nature and celebrating nature. And in general, Tubishvad has become a holiday associated in, a, in at least in America and in, in the contemporary time with connection to earth and a celebration of nature. And I remember going to Hebrew school back in the good old days and how we put money in the pushki to buy trees in Israel. Yeah, so there's a Zionist element to it. And there are even these songs, there are these, all these kind of nationalistic, apparently if you're Israeli, you'll know them. Or if you're an Israeli baby boomer, you'll know them. And they're really about the land and it's exciting. And so there is like this Zionist connection to Israel element of Tubishvat. And then there's a more universalistic, which maybe the Tubishvat Seder brings out. And, and that's why I think we have rabbis try to say it's more universal. And then other thinkers say, no, it's just a Jewish custom. Right. And so the seven species, I guess, are wheat, barley, figs, grapes, pomegranates, olives, and dates associated with the land of Israel. And that became part of the, the association there. But you know, it seems like certain streams of Judaism just wanted to create this big environmentalist movement and wanted to plant oh. trees everywhere. I heard a presentation by um, Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik, uh-huh. who said, oh, none of that universalistic stuff works. This is just about Zionism. This is about Israel, period. Yeah, but, you know, we have in our tradition, there is an element of universalism within Israel also. Israel is supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to be the light or Lagoyim. We're supposed to be light onto the nation. When we celebrate planting trees in Israel and the, our connection to the land of Israel and the wonderful fruits of Israel, you know, that sort of is a beacon of light for the whole world. And just as we should celebrate those things growing in Israel, we should appreciate those things growing everywhere. I don't mind jumping from the particularistic to the universalistic and and back and forth, as long as we're not denying either. As long as we're not denying the centrality of Israel and the Jewish tradition, but also the importance of uh, spreading the good word to the whole world. Now, you said wonderful fruits, and yet why is it that dried carob, a.k.a. boxer, (laughs) are part of this tradition? If anyone's tried it and not broken a tooth on it and tried (laughs) to glean some sort of taste out of this, I don't even know how to describe it if you haven't had it before. Why is that part of people's view of this holiday? Well, it's like leathery. It's a very dry, leathery fruit. It's sweet. It it is kind of sweet. And you're right, you can't chew the seeds, they're very hard. What I've seen is that we try to show that if buxer is what it's called, carob, if it grows in Israel, we show how much we love Israel, even though it's animal food and it's really for, you know, donkeys and horses and cows, but we want to show how much we love Israel. So we're even willing to eat the, the awful fruit of Israel because we just love the land so much. Plus, I assume it's the only fruit that would make its way in the old days to Lithuania. 
I know it was all like potatoes and buxer. That was the almost as hard as the Israeli bazooka gum from the 70s. If you remember way back in 1981, because I was in Yeshiva and Brisk in Chicago then, and I think Haagen-Dazs was just starting and they used to have carob before they even had chocolate. It was carob flavor ice cream and it was okay. I guess it was good enough to sell, but then they said, you can't find carob flavored ice cream anymore, but they did start with that. So, you know, good for them. And they started with a big OU, which was kosher. So there are probably too many lawsuits over broken teeth. Exactly. I think it was, uh, it didn't have the seeds in it, I think. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, we are absolutely delighted to have as our very special guest tonight, Professor Roberta Rosenthal Qual who is the Raymond P. Nero professor at DePaul University College of Law. And she happened to be my professor when I was there. Can I say how many years ago or should I not? Sure, why not? <laughs> 30 years ago, I took her class in intellectual property. But I was 12. I was 12 when I was your professor. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you gave me a, a pretty okay grade. I mean, I never got any great <laughs> grades, but you, I think you gave me an okay grade. So I appreciate that. Uh, she has written 30 articles on all sorts of topics involving Jewish law and culture. She's the author of several law casebooks that are used nationally, as well as some monographs on the myth of the cultural Jew yes. and the soul of creativity. Her most recent book is Remix Judaism, which we're going to talk about tonight. And she's currently working on a book for a popular audience about transmitting Jewish tradition in a diverse world. Oh. Professor Qual, a.k.a. Bobby, may I call you Bobby now? Sure, of course. As soon as you graduate, that's, you know, you, you could be, you could have been calling me Bobby for 30 years. <laughs> I have to tell you, my stress level is so much down talking to you now that I'm actually asking you the questions. It feels so much better. <laughs> right. The payback is payback. <laughs> and John, I am quoted in Bobby's book and Professor Qual's book, Myth of the Cultural Jew. And you actually, Rabbi Lopatin actually did a cover blurb on the back the back of the book when the cover blurb is Rabbi Edlo Patton's endorsement of the book, which was it's such a huge honor. It's such a huge honor for me. So well, yeah. we're really, really excited to be with you. And it's a great reunion because I've been away from Chicago for a while. Yeah. It's really great to, to come and we've back. Missed you. We've missed you here in Chicago. Well, there are other rabbis who can make trouble. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> but not the way you do. OK, there you go. <laughs> what do they say? Good trouble, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. Well, you know, I, what, what I'm intrigued by is when I was there back in the good old days, you were all about property and intellectual property and things like that. I don't remember you teaching anything about Jewish studies. How did you get from where you were then to starting the Center for Jewish Law and Judaic Studies at DePaul College of Law and then springboarding to all these fascinating introspection and, and views on Jewish life today? And DePaul's a, a Catholic university, right? Yeah, yeah, we are. We are a Catholic university. That's true. So that was, it was an interesting journey, right? But there actually was a path to the journey, right? And if you're somebody who kind of believes that life has a path generally, which I do, and, and, and a planned path, then this was really a perfect, a perfect match of this, you know? So I, I actually majored in religion and American studies in college. I had a double major. And so that's kind of interesting because that seems to be exactly what I'm writing about now, X number of years later. But back 
in the day when when you were a student, yes, I, I really copyright law was really my main area of studies. And I wrote a lot about a particular doctrine in copyright law. It's called moral rights. But what it really is about is how much can you change an author's work and is it still the author's work? And so I wrote a, a ton of articles and a book, The Soul of Creativity, is about moral rights law. And, and I always ask that question, how much can a work of authorship, a work of art change and still be the work of the original artist? And one day I had this eureka moment and I woke up and I thought, hmm, you know, you really could ask that same question about, about Judaism and about Jewish law. How much can it change and still be Jewish law? And I thought this was really pretty amazing. It was like an amazing insight. I was finishing up my book on moral rights, The Soul of Creativity, and I actually thought this would be a great, a great thing to write about another book about. So this was, again, probably 2007. You could still get an editor of a major press on the telephone. And so I made some calls, including to, to Oxford University Press. And I happened to get this editor on the phone who actually was interested in religion and law. And he, he was not Jewish, at least by his name. And I pitched my idea to him. I said, I want to look at Jewish law from the standpoint of how much can it change and still be Jewish law. And he thought that sounded fabulous. And I thought, wow, this is great. So I put a proposal together. And then I realized I'm going to have to learn some Jewish law to write this book. <laughs> so that's I, so I enrolled in Spurdus and, and got a master's degree in, in rabbinics and Jewish law. And, and in the course of writing that book, that book is really a, basically a history of halakha, looking at halakha, Jewish law, from the standpoint of how it's been shaped by outside forces external to Jewish culture by inside forces. And it really covers the entire, you know, from the Torah up until, you know, basically our current century. And toward the end of the book, the last chapter is, is actually about American Judaism. And as I was finishing that up, what comes out, but the Pew Report of 2013. And then I sort of got to see firsthand what that American Jewish community looks like statistically. I mean, it was it was pretty stark and there was a lot of hand wringing. I, I know you remember that, Rabbi Lopat. We still have the hand wringing. I and got a lot of good sermons out of that Pew study. Lots of I'm sure. I'm sure oh, a lot like, of good sermons. It keeps on giving. It, it keeps on giving, right, in, including in its 2020 iteration. And so when I was finishing up the, the book, I, I actually was speaking with Rabbi with Ver, Vernon Kurtz, who was he, who is a professor at Spurtus, and he actually supervised much of that book, The Myth of the Cultural Jew, during my time in studies. And he said, you know, Bobby, you're doing enough in this book. This is an academic book. Leave that for the next day. So the next day, I knew I was going to write a book that really looks at the practical application of my theory that I really developed in the myth of the cultural Jew. And that book is Remix Judaism. And, and the basic point of Remix Judaism is, look, you know, people may practice a little differently, right? Different communities may have different ways of practicing, but that at the end of the day, if you're not practicing Judaism, you know, you're not going to have anything to transmit. And I feel as passionately about that concept now as I did the day I started that book and the day I started The Myth of the Cultural Jew. And, and, and I still feel that ritual, meaning the practice of Judaism, I still feel we don't take that seriously enough, certainly in what I call religiously liberal circles. And, and I define that basically as circles that are not orthodox circles. So there you have it. That's how we got from, from A to Z. Got it. Well, let me ask you this. In all, all your studies, can I place you in the spectrum of traditional conservative Judaism? Would that be about right? 
<laughs> Should we tick that a couple to the left, maybe cent central to traditional uh, conservatism? I would say, I mean, at this point, you know, I get asked that all the time. You know, I mean, obviously, I, I belong to a conservative synagogue. If there was a modern Orthodox synagogue in walking distance, I'm sure I would oh. definitely participate Woo! there. Modern right? Orthodoxy. Yeah, I, I'm I definitely a track. I'm definitely. There was a hint. Yeah, yeah, right. Come, come, <laughs> come open it up. No, but, come, come I mean, to Detroit. Come to Hunting the Woods. I, yeah, really. But I mean, you know, my norms, I mean, I, I was raised in the conservative movement. My kids were raised in the conservative movement. So I, I think I would, I would probably classify myself as conservadox. If I had to pick something, it would be that term conservadox, which is in between conservative and and modern orthodox. My personal practices probably are pretty much to the right, I would say, of what mainstream conservative Judaism is at this point. But but I would also say this, my native language Jewishly is religiously liberal. Okay. My native, I've learned to speak Orthodox I, and I have, but my native language is religiously liberal. And that also does influence, you know, how one thinks about religion as well. I guess we can have classes now. Orthodox is a second language. Yeah, we can. Right. We can. <laughs> I mean, where do you think the Orthodox world also has undergone some significant changes or you think it is? I'm thinking of the Kolel world of people, you know, the encouraged not to work or. Yeah. And, and what about modern Orthodoxy with maybe women rabbis or women learning Talmud? Do you think there's been a lot of changes there, too? Well, absolutely. I mean, and I think what's really interesting about orthodoxy that most people, unless you're really enmeshed in studying this, Mark Trencher basically is the head of the Nishma Institute that studies, you know, orthodoxy generally, modern orthodoxy in particular. And he has said that orthodoxy in general is probably the least homogeneous of all of the movements. You know, there's so much of a spectrum within orthodoxy. And I think what we're seeing in orthodoxy is, is also reflected in religiously liberal Judaism, which is you've got these extremes developing even within orthodoxy. The right of orthodoxy is becoming far more, mm -hmm. far more stringent, yeah. right? Yeah. And the left is are sort of looking at things that would never have been considered, you know, X number of years ago. So I think you have that same pulling, uh, pulling apart in mm -hmm. some ways. When I was growing up, I I'm from New Jersey originally. I'm not a Chicago girl, and there was a yeshiva in the town one over from where I lived. I grew up in Union and in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Oh, sure, my tights, yeah, my tights, right? He was, that was the yeshiva. And I, I really had no idea what that was. Like we used to drive by it on the way to visit our relatives in New York. And my dad would say, there's the yeshiva. And it's like, what's this yeshiva? It sounded so mysterious. And I was very intrigued with it even back then. But honestly, my roommate in college was modern Orthodox. And there was very little difference between the two of us in terms of how we observed, what we wore, how we thought about things. You know, she went to Jewish day school. I did not, but there was very little difference. And I really didn't know anybody that was Orthodox in the way that now we have so many Orthodox people, what we would call centrist Orthodox and certainly right-wing Orthodox. I didn't know anybody that would fit in that mold. So I do think Orthodoxy is changing a lot as well. And one of the problems from my perspective is that because the extremes are pulling both sides and we see this politically and we see this religiously, we don't have a center anymore. And that I think makes the work of dialogue, the work that you're trying to do, Rabbi Lopatin, so much more difficult. We need to reestablish that center. 
Yeah, yeah. What I found interesting in the book, and I, I've tabbed it in a few places, was your mention of modern orthodoxy and belief in God going down as low as 75%. Yeah, according to the statistics. Yeah, right. That surprised me too. That did surprise me. But you know, it's really interesting. When I first moved to Chicago, I actually was a I, I was an associate at Sidley and Austin, a big law firm here in here in Chicago. And we don't had- talk about competing law firms on this podcast. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, okay, I'm kidding. Sorry. You're good. Uh, we will strike that. We will strike that from the record. <laughs> <laughs> Mea culpa. But we had a Torah study group in, in Sidley and Austin, which which had merged with another firm that was more Jewish, right? So there was a there was a pretty Jewish presence to, to Sidley back in, this was back in the, the early 80s, but we had a Torah study group. And it was led by, I don't know if you both remember Shelley Cohn. Do you remember Shelley Cohn? He, he sadly, he passed away several years ago. He, he was a wonderful lawyer, wonderful man. And he was our guy, right? And so I remember very clearly, we had two Orthodox people, Shelley, and then we had a young associate who I would say probably would be centrist orthodox. You know, he wore black and white, so I wasn't attuned to those nuances then, but I certainly am now. And I remember we talked one day I brought up faith. We don't talk about God. Why don't we talk about God? Why don't Jews talk about God? My friends in religious studies at Brown who were evangelical Christians, they talk about God all the time. Why don't we? So I brought this up and and Shelley looked at the associate, the Orthodox associate, and he said, that's a great question. And he looked at him, he said, do you believe in God? And the associate was like, what do you mean? Like, do I, of course I believe in God. And, and, I, and this really stuck with me. And Shelley said, well, you can't assume that. Right. And I was shocked. It's like, how can you be Orthodox and not assume that? I understand that a little bit better now, right? You know, Commentary Magazine ran a piece by Jay Lefkowitz five years ago, The Social Orthodox, right? You know, I do understand that. It didn't totally surprise me, those studies, that there are Orthodox people that are not totally sure. And certainly if you read a lot of the literature in the Lair House, which is a scholarly journal that's basically written by and for modern Orthodox people more scholarly. So, you know, there's a lot of discussion about God and the day schools and how do we teach us in the day schools and what do we do about this? I wasn't surprised by those statistics, to be honest. It's sort of par for what we see around us. Our society generally is pulling away from traditional religion, not just in Jewish circles, but across the board, I think. I was at a Baptist church, not for service on Sunday, but for a... Uh, if there's anything wrong with that. Right? So, But it was for an installation of a new president of a Baptist organization. And they they love God. They God yeah. is God is everything. That was God is everything. God is... And it, I wonder if there's some element that it's... When we say it in Hebrew, if we realize all the praise of God we're giving in Hebrew, I don't know if Jews, modern Orthodox Jews could, could I don't want to say stomach it, but it's, it's, it's fascinating to see how some Christians really, God is so central, like exactly what you're saying, Bobby, and, mm-hmm. and for modern Orthodox, I mean, observance, Shabbat and kosher, and even for centrists and ultra-Orthodox, you know, tzniyas, modesty and kosher and community. And, and of course, God is, is sort of ties it all together, but it also reminds me of like Art Green, Rabbi Art Green, who's mm-hmm. not Orthodox, but a great, and a great thinker. Um, and he says he's a monist. He doesn't believe him. God is a monist. So God is everywhere. And I think like a lot of the modern Orthodox or whatever that 
don't really believe in God, but they believe in some kind of force that holds it all together. The contrast in from really Baptist Christian to, and these are, are African-American, Black Baptist, Baptist missionary, you know, from them to Shul, where, you know, it's a totally different focus. Even Shul, you'd think it focus on God, but it's a different kind of focus. Different. Focus. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a comedian, a Jewish comedian who who started speaking the prayers and singing the prayers in English. And just to show you how jarring it would actually sound, you know, translated. And, yeah. and to our ears, the Hebrew just kind of rolls off. And even if you understand the words, it mm-hmm. doesn't have that same import. And then but when he said, blessed art thou, our God, and it's just like, ooh, that sounds kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I also think it it has to do as well, you know, with this whole intellectual tradition that Judaism, that okay. Judaism has has spawned, that comes from even the Talmudic approach, yeah. and it comes from the intellectualism that basically spurs. And I think there's this idea that, well, you can't be intellectual, you know, you really can't be intellectual and yet have these supernatural, you know, type of beliefs. Um, I actually think that's too bad. Right. Yeah. I actually think we would do better. People would do better. You know, I think about. Does that make you a, a conservative chassid then? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I mean, I think about this. So she's a social worker. I think her name is Erica Commissar, I believe is her name. And she wrote this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal several years back. And basically what she said in it, and I believe she is Jewish as well. And she said, parents, if you don't believe in God and your kids ask you, lie. Yeah. Why does she say that? Because it's better. It's better to be brought up having some faith. It makes life easier, richer, better, and more comfortable. And I, it's too bad that we can't just say, okay, there's the intellectualism and maybe you suspend your belief, your intellectualism a little bit when, you know, like my husband says all the time, and I love, I think this is really important. I think this is a really important concept. He'll say religion is an art. It's not a science. And I think I think that's a very wise statement, actually. Yeah. I was talking to a rabbi. I said, what if there was no God? And he said, well, the alternative is nihilism. Yeah. And I think there was something I mean, to that. That sort of, I, mean, I do think I like, well, I'm in Detroit and we're very proud. It's the found, you know, the humanistic Judaism was founded in Detroit. It's one of our great products like Henry Ford, <laughs> Father Coughlin. <laughs> well, have to know, right? So I, I actually, I like both. I like what Bobby's saying. I think to have a personal God, a God that cries with you, that laughs with you, that even theurgy, that if I pray hard, God's going to help me. There's such a value to that. Or God at least will be with me. God is feeling what I'm feeling. You know, I am with you in your hard times in the Psalms. So I love that. I also love, and by the way, David Hartman had a hard time with it. Maimonides is, you know, we love Maimonides, but he's the one who's like, no, God is Greek intellectual God. But I also like the idea, the humanistic idea, maybe a little bit Mordechai Kaplan of like, you know, shul as a civilization and the elements that this is a great way of life and a meaningful way of life. If it's done properly, if, you know, if Shabbat is really done and you for your Friday nights with family and guests and and all sorts of things, I kind of like both. I, I like combining a, I think, a personal God 
that's really with you that that you believe is looking at you and in your life is so important. And I also like the idea of just we do these things not only because we're doing what God asks us, that's important, asks of us, but also because it's just meaningful and beautiful and powerful. I think I think one of the problems though, and I think we see this in religiously liberal communities, one of the problems is with without that that idea of faith, it does make it really hard to sustain the parts of the rest of it that you're talking about. So it's like, well, okay, you know, I, I on this particular Shabbos, I don't feel like going to shul, so maybe I'm going to go to the mall instead. Mm-hmm. And and without that whole package, right, yeah. it, it makes it very easy to do that. And I, And I think that's part of the problem. You don't see that as much, I don't think, in orthodox circles, because there are community norms that are really, really strong. But those community norms are also being bolstered by at least the idea of God, which pervades that entire religious community. I think in communities where it's a little bit more like, well, we don't know, we're unsure, we think this is a good thing to do, then it becomes looser, right? And the yeah. norms become looser. And it makes transmission harder. I, I totally agree with you. And I think that's why social orthodoxy will really see if you can transmit it, because that's right. really what it is, as you know, oh, this is so great. And they go to shul and they love it. But you know, when the, the challenges in life, can you transmit that? Yeah, to the next one. I, I hear that. And Rachel, my wife, always says that, you know, when when you're in the store, and, you know, when kids want, I want this candy, I want that candy, I want this. If the candy's not kosher and they're, the kids grow up in a kosher, they know, even as little kids, that's off limits. You can't say, no, I want the triangle K or, you know, I want the tablet K or I want this. You know, no, you, you can't. This is... This is kosher, is not kosher. So I think you're right. I think that does give a sort of a strength to it. It's kind of like, you know, holding both balls in your hand. One is God demands that I do this. And the other ball is that this is something that's meaningful and so beautiful and so powerful. Right, exactly. And you also mentioned in your book, even within the Orthodox movements that you described, that even they engage in what you call remix, right? I I don't know Mm -hmm. if you use this example, but the example I always think of, and I'm not a big sports fan, but my some of my best friends are, right, who may be Orthodox and may close their window shades and watch certain games on certain Sabbaths. And, you know, maybe God's not watching when you close your window shades. I don't know. But, you know, there, there is this notion that even Orthodox pick and choose. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Everybody picks and chooses. Everybody picks and chooses because none of us are perfect. And we're all, look, e- even if there's not picking and choosing in terms of, you know, the ritualistic aspects of Judaism, there's plenty of picking and choosing in terms of other kinds of things, right? We're human and, and none of us are perfect. Yes, I, I, there there is definitely that. And there's flexibility even within orthodoxy on there's different perspectives on uncertain things, right? And even kashrut, you know, there's there's a lot of different perspectives. You know, some Orthodox people, you know, will will in a non-kosher restaurant eat a salad, right? Yeah. Some will even eat fish, you know, hot cooked food. I mean, there, there's a whole range of, you know, of perspectives, I think. So, uh, you know, the views expressed on this podcast, not necessarily, you know, <laughs> but they might necessarily be mine. <laughs> I'm not endorsing anything. I'm just yeah, saying, we know. on we the know. ground, you know, you have a, di- you have a different, right. like, so that roommate of mine, right. In college that, that I mentioned before that we were very similar. I actually, 
I don't know, I, I called her maybe five years ago. I found her, I called her, we had a conversation and I was really curious what her kashrut practices were. She's still Orthodox. And she told me what they were. <laughs> and, they, and, and, and I was a little bit surprised by what they were. I mean, you know, again, she's not eating meat or anything else like that out, but I, I thought it was just really interesting. So yeah, there's, there's a, look, there's a spectrum, of course. I, I like being really liberal on the issues that, like going to an intermarriage or something like, can you, you know, like on Kashrut, I'm actually very, I feel I'm pretty strict. I, you know, I don't go to vegetarian restaurant. I don't go to, you know, I don't even eat a vegan, even though this, you know, and again, many people have different leniencies, but on issues of I mean, what does orthodoxy really, really say about same-sex marriage or about other kind of issues, or again, should you attend an intermarriage, you know, are you encouraging that? Or are you just, should you just express your love? So those are kind of issues that I, I try to struggle and be more, you know, on the lenient side. Yeah. Well, Bob, Bobby's definition in Remix is exercising individual choice concerning elements of ritual performance, infusing these choices with personal meaning, and practicing these choices with consistency and agree of authenticity. Hmm. And of course, the $64 million question, right, which people ask me all the time when I've done talks on Remus Judaism is what is authenticity, right? How do you define authenticity? Where do you draw the lines? And, and of course, there's, there's no answer to that, right? You can't define authenticity. It's, it's just, maybe it's a little bit of, you know it when you see it, there are certain things that we know are not authentic, but that's really what's difficult because it comes back to that question that I started with, you know, how much can you change it? And it's still it's still Judaism. So you're always going to have that question, particularly when you are playing a little bit with halakhic norms more than perhaps oh. be sustainable, tolerable in communities that were further to the right. But the, the truth of the matter is when it comes to religiously liberal Jews, and again, I put conservative and everything to, to the left, most people don't observe, and I say this in Remix Judaism, they don't observe because God commanded. That's just not how the majority of religiously liberal Jews function. And we talked about that a few minutes ago, right? It's a different perception of God. It doesn't mean they don't believe. It just means that that idea that God dictated we do X, Y, and Z, and therefore we do it is not something that religiously liberal Jews typically buy into. So you have to have another reason. And that other reason has to be, it's meaningful to me. And if you can make it meaningful to you, you'll do it and you'll observe it. And you yeah. can set that path for your for your children or others that you wish to influence. Let me put that. So what, what is new in remix Judaism? I mean, is it any different than what we've been doing for millennia? You know, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. I find the spot where I'm comfortable and I stick with it is what is what is new about your your phraseology around this? Well, that's a good question. And I think what's new about it is, you know, in years gone by, right, the liberal communities could sort of get by doing what they were doing, right, because society wasn't in the same place you know, 30, 40 years ago, as it is now. If you want your kids to be practicing Judaism now, you've got to work hard to make that happen, especially if you're not living in an Orthodox community and within the norms of, of what we think of as Orthodoxy. You have to work really hard to establish Jewish practices. You have to be really thoughtful about what you're doing. What's new is the reason that that is new is it's something we don't really think enough about, which is why some of the statistics that we see in the Pew Report look the way 
they, so I think what's new about it is, you know, Judaism is not going to get perpetuated unless clergy, you know, at, at synagogues and their congregants are thinking about what am I doing and what messages am I sending to the next generation? It's not going to just happen. Whereas, you know, 40 years ago, people just, you know, lived in a, they lived in Jewish bubbles for the most part. And, and that's not where we are right now. Like inertia. Yeah. 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 So we only have a couple more minutes with you, Professor Qual, and I wanted to touch on intermarriage. And you're a, a little bit of a hawk, can we say, on intermarriage? For somebody who basically, you know, lives and, and sort of works within religiously, again, that's my first language. In some ways, that's a hard place to be because outside of orthodoxy, if you take the orthodox out, you know, the statistics are like 72% of people are intermarrying, right? And, you know, what I talk about in Remix, like, again, Remix Judaism is written for a really broad audience. It's written for people who are intermarried as well as people who, who are not. Uh -huh. um, what I talk about in Remix Judaism is that for all couples, all couples, whether uh -huh. they are intermarried or not intermarried, Judaism has to be made a priority. Fantastic. And that goes back to what I was saying before. And that's very hard because a lot of young people are pulled in so many more directions, even than when I was raising our children, you know, 25 years ago, it's life has gotten faster. There's social media. It's a whole different, it's a whole different scenario. And so again, your kids are just not going to wake up and say, okay, I want to be Jewish and I'm going to continue to be, you know, you have to work hard at it. I think when you're dealing with couples um, where both parents are, are haven't been brought up Jewish and one has not converted to Judaism. So we're dealing with we're dealing with intermarriage, right? I think it's I think it is more challenging. What I say in Remix Judaism is that the issues are the same facing in married and intermarried couples. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. the pull, you know, the the pulls in other directions are the same, but what's different is the the matter of between the two. So right. yeah. Yeah, I hear it. So you're saying just that in an, in an intermarriage, there are more challenges than in marriage and all things being equal. But I, I love your message of prioritizing. Gosh, I think that is, I was talking to some students this morning about, you know, the whole question of where, you know, well, I have to, you know, in orthodoxy, we don't drive to shul. I mean, that in general, that's the halacha, that's the law. And on Shabbat. On Shabbat. Thank, thank you. You're right. Yes. So you know, and the idea, well, I live far away from shul, so I, you know, I have to drive. I want to go to shul. But you have prioritized not driving to shul. You will find a house, even though it's not as nice of a house. It's not as nice of a neighborhood, maybe, but within walking distance of the synagogue. So it's really a lot of it's of, of priority. And it doesn't mean to exclude. Like, you can meet up with someone if you're, even if you're kosher, so you don't eat or, you know, or you bring your sandwich. I think, but prioritizing yeah i think that that's the key word it has to be emphasized i mean that's that's the thing that you know it has to be emphasized within, within the structure of the family so again in religiously liberal circles the driving issue is largely not going to be considered but but there are other things you know are you making time every week to mark shabbat Okay. Mm -hmm. You may not be observing it by dotting the I's and crossing the T's. You may be lighting your candles, at, you know, after the, the 18 minute before sundown oh, window, yes. right? All of these things. But are you observing Shabbat? Are you marking Shabbat? Are you telling your kids, look, this is something special. This is, this is sacred time. This is what Jews do. But even that, it sounds, I know from, to, from an Orthodox perspective, that sounds like, oh, oh that's so little, but it's not so little in the grand scheme of things, because most families are just not doing that. 
Yeah, that's that's I, I totally I so it reminds me. Rachel and I occasionally, like in the winter, Shabbat and Anshi Shalom in Chicago would start at four o'clock. We'd be yeah. done with synagogue by five. And occasionally there'd be something at Temple Shalom, the reformed shul just up the block, some events, some speakers, something. So we would, we walked over there and in you know, reformed synagogue, let's say they started 6.30 year round or seven o'clock. It's dark outside and they have the ritual of lighting Shabbat candles. And like you said, Professor Qual, it's look, it's beautiful. They're doing it, but it's on shine. I always was wondering, I was not going to do this, but should I? No, <laughs> no Shabbos. I didn't. And, you know, and we have to, you know, respect each other's efforts that we're really making. I totally agree. You know, whatever level you're on, really try to uh, try to do more and try to make that that time. Well, that's wonderful. Before we let you go, I want you to tell the story about coming to Shul and speaking about that fascinating topic in the Talmud about how often certain professions should be having sex. <laughs> I knew you weren't going to let that one go, right? So yeah, that was that was the talk. I think it was one of those summer sermons where the lay people, you know, did did sermons, you know, in the summertime. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to talk about mitzvah actually, which is which is a con, which is really a, a topic that does not arise very often, if at all, in conservative and certainly reformed circles. And now mitzvah is making a comeback, actually. But but the but the practice of tarat mishpat, the ritualistic notion of the rhythm of mitzvah, is not something. You, you don't hear a lot about it in those circles. Mikvah so I get it. a ritual bath that based on rainwater and 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 it's part of a, a, a women's maybe monthly cycle and other kind of occasions you go to the mikvah. So yes. Yeah. So again, that, that was sort of uncharted territory for the most part. I don't think anyone at, at that synagogue had ever talked about that before or maybe after, I don't know. And so as part of that, I, I did want to sort of talk about there are some ways, look, that Judaism is very female-centered. Now, it's not all of Judaism, as we well know, right? But but people are surprised. You know, I've, I taught a class at DePaul on women in Jewish law to, you know, more non-Jews in the class than Jews. And when I, and I taught this as well. And and my students, when they when they heard that, that it, it's a man's obligation, an obligation, it's a mitzvah to satisfy their wife sexually, my students were like, I'm going to go convert right now. You know? <laughs> so I talked. Did you have standing room only for that class? No, basically. And so I talked about this at our synagogue, John, and I talked about that how much sex the women are entitled to, according to Talmud, are, is dependent on the husband's profession, because depending on what they do, they'd have more time. And of course, the funniest part of that piece of Talmud is like, you know, the, the men who, the rich men who have time, they can wallow around, they have time to eat great food and do whatever they have to do the most right because they have the most time but i i it, that's so rich right that's talmud that that's tom that's talmud as much as other things you know and and of course there's there's also and i didn't talk about this but it really goes with it that talmudic narrative where the student hides under the bed of his teacher right the rabbi and he's observing the rabbi and his wife doing their thing and he goes well this too is talmud right so in that way i mean judaism is a really comprehensive religion right I mean it really it's human and that's what I think makes it so you know just incredibly precious and something that we we don't want that lost you know we don't want that lost among any of the Jewish communities 
John, I think this is our Valentine's Day episode. So uh, very good, you know. <laughs> That's right. What a great way to end. Bobby, thank you so very much. First of all, thank you for teaching me intellectual property law 30 years ago, even though I've never used it since, but it was a fascinating discussion then. Thank you for teaching me Talmud on how often I'm supposed to have relations. And thank you for joining this podcast. And what a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. And I can't wait for the next one. And we'll get you back on for the next the next iteration of your views on Judaism. Wow. Thank Thanks you so much. So much. It was wonderful being with both of you. Thank you. Thank you. What an honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks. It's my honor was mine. John, that was amazing. And to think that you had a teacher like Professor Qual and, and she had a student like you. Well, for the most part, I hated law school, but I really enjoyed her class and I've enjoyed her company over the last three decades or so. I've seen her in action, both in print and in speeches, and she's just a wonderful person, and she's really, truly dedicated to keeping the flame alive. So we're very fortunate to have her. Fantastic. That's great. Well, well, I think, John, I think this is, it wraps it up for this podcast. It does indeed. Enjoy all your species and all your red and white wines on Tubishvat, and let's make it a good one. Excellent. Eat some buxer. Eat some carob. Just be careful out there. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to get our next episode delivered right to you. If you really like us, please consider leaving a review and sharing this with a friend. That would really help our efforts. And finally, to contact us and for more show-related information, please visit our website, rabbilawyerbar.com. Special thanks to our production team, David Stone for the introduction music, Andrew Bauman for the artwork, and I'm Nicholas Tantillo. This podcast is co-produced with Front and Social Studios in Chicago. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Copyrighted material, all rights reserved.